O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Increase and multiply on us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal, that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, July the 24th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. That that collect is probably my favorite prayer in the church. Let me read that to you again. The protector, go God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong and nothing is holy. Increase and multiply on us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. That is some of the most important theology that you're ever going to hear. Because what are we doing? We, we act as though, right, that this is all there is, and there's nothing more. And we act that way because it's the thing we can see. And so we, we, we don't see ourselves passing through this most of the time. We deny that the reality of, that this life is just, you know, what, as Chuck Murphy would say, a gnat's belch in the, in the grand scheme of things, and, and that the really important part comes next. And, and that's exactly the thing that we need to be dealing with, is, is this, that we need to understand and take that longer view in order that we can then become the kind of people that are fit for the kingdom and who are best exemplifying what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So just a little quick heads up sort of you know life sort of stuff we've been uh, had a busy week this week we've got a, a wedding we had a wedding to do this week and the rehearsal on Friday the wedding on Saturday and about an hour from where we are out in Lake Lure and uh, it was wonderful a glorious week a beautiful week we had a good time we got together with friends and uh, it, so it was it was a, a perfect week in so many ways so um we, we were able to get out of the woods a good bit, had a great hike on Friday after the rehearsal. We went to Hendersonville and went up to Carl Sandburg's house down there, actually, and then went up on top of Glassy Mountain. Beautiful, perfect day to be there. A little bit hot, but for my taste anyway, but it, but it was a great day. And so anyway, it's just been that kind of a week, a lot of you know good things uh, going on. And, and so um, feeling good and uh, everything's going well. Hope it is for you as well. If not, shoot me an email. Uh, at MSPG, Mary Suzanne Paget Green, MSPG Teach 2002 at gmail.com. And let me know how I can pray for you. So, anyway, this idea of passing through things temporal in order that we lose not things eternal requires us to have a biblical worldview. It requires us to understand things through the lens of the Bible. It's God's Word, beginning with the creation of all things by God, and it being a good creation that was marred by our sinfulness. And that's the beginning of a biblical worldview. And it's to understand that the world around me is not as the Creator intended it to be, but it's not His fault. It's because we had free will. And so we were able to choose the good but we chose evil instead. We made a bad choice in the beginning, and thereafter everything has rolled downhill to get us to the place where we are today. And so we see things that don't make sense to us, and then we try and make sense of those things, and we try to do so, and we try to make sense of the world around us 
through a, a myriad of different lenses, and and that becomes a problem. And what Paul says in um, Romans twelve one is is that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we won't be conformed to the image of the world. And and that's essentially the putting that collect in a nutshell. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at three different lessons, right? So always an Old Testament lesson, an epistle, and a gospel. And so today we've got Genesis 18, verses 20 to 32. And this is a little bit following on last week's lesson where the Lord came and visited with Abraham in his tent after his circumcision, and then the three men come, and Abraham provides you know, elaborate hospitality for them. And so now, as they're leaving, the Lord says, should should we tell Abraham what we're going to do? So he, he's going to take Abraham into his confidence because of Abraham's hospitality to the three men. So he, he sees that he is a man after God's own heart, and so he says, we've come down here. We found Abraham to be a trustworthy man. Now should I tell him why we're here? And so they did. And so the Lord explains to him, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So what he's saying is, is that, that I hear the prayers, I hear the cry of the earth, I hear the cries of the people that tell me how horrible Sodom and Gomorrah are, but I need to see for myself. And God's done this once before. When in Genesis 11, when they're building the Tower of Babel, they wanted to build a tower into the sky so that they could make a name for themselves in the heavens. Well, the the commandment was to um, multiply across the face of the earth, not into the heavens. And so God said, what's going on down there? And and he said, I got to go down there and see for myself, which is sort of a, a, a rebuke of their idea that they're building a tower into the heavens to make a name for themselves. And God says, I have to go down to earth to actually see what they're doing. It's it, what, what we conceive of as the heavens is much, much higher, and we can't ever succeed in doing what we're trying to do when we're trying to build a name for ourselves in the heavens. There's only two names that matter up there, and that's Yahweh and Jesus, Yahweh, um, the, the Son of God, Jesus. So the, the, those names, we, we can, it's a futile attempt to do this, and so God comes down to see what's going on, and then he brings judgment he brings judgment based on what he sees when he comes down, and that judgment is to confuse languages and spread the people all over the face of the earth, which is exactly what his original plan was. And they were attempting to thwart it. They were afraid to expand. They wanted to stay in one place and build up to the sky. So God thwarted that. So the other time that you see judgment in Genesis is Genesis 6. Why does God not come down to earth then? Because here's the problem in Genesis 6, one of the main problems, and it's one of the things that we overlook because we focus on that the fact that the only intention of man's heart was only evil all the time, which is true. It's in Genesis. But the other side of it is this. It says, when a man... Began, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them. So they're, they're multiplying on the face of the land. They're doing what they're intended to do. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God, those are the angels, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for his flesh and his day shall be 120 years. So when you mix those two things, you end up with something else. The Nephilim, which is the mixture, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We tend to overlook that because it's uncomfortable, it's weird, and we don't understand it. 
But the sons of God refers to these angels, and so God didn't need to come down because the ones he sent, the ones who had come down, had intermarried with um, the daughters of men. So God didn't need to come down because that was already taken care of. And so then what do we get? In the end, we get Jesus coming down um, in the incarnation, not just to see what's going on, but to participate in that fully and to allow the world to have its way with him. Because it was looking for a temporal thing, as the colleague said. It was looking for an earthly ruler and an earthly Messiah who would come and be king and establish God's kingdom on the earth in an earthly way. And Jesus says, that's not my mission. That's not my job. But here, what, so what we've got is God telling Abraham, the reason I've come down is I've heard about what's going on in Sodom, and now I've come down to see it with my own eyes. I, I can't judge something without actually seeing it with my own eyes. Now, if we were better about that, the world would be a better place because we tend to make judgments on things based on somebody else's statements about a reality. And so we, we end up with these polarized divisions that are never based in fact in so many cases that, that one group of people sees things a certain way, and I heard this, and I heard this, and I heard this, and then the other side sees it a different way because they heard this, 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 and this. And so that God says, no, I'm coming down. I'm, I'm coming down to see this. So the men, the three men that visited uh, Abraham, turned from there where they were and went to Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, he, what he says there, this, this opening gambit in this bargain that he's trying to make with God, tells you everything you need to know. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He knows. Abraham knows about Sodom. He knows everything that he needs to know. That's the reason that he's now going to bargain with God. He lets those three men leave because he knows that God's the one who's going to execute judgment. And so he begins his, his argumentation here by, by, by saying there's wicked people in Sodom. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He knows that what the Lord has heard is absolutely true, and that's going to cause judgment to come down on this city. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, we have no idea how many people were in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. No idea at all, because we don't know where these places are. So we don't have a clue as to how many people might have lived there. So we don't know 50, we don't know what percentage of the whole 50 righteous men would be. But, but that's where he begins with his bargain. Is it, how about 50? If you got 50 there, would you, would you destroy it? He's far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. It's not fair to destroy the whole city because there are righteous people there. And, and what would, how does it look if you destroy righteous people because of the sin of the wicked? Well, Again, there's a short-term thing. Now, does he have a fully developed eschatology? You know, what happens in the end times, the, 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 uh, the, the coming again of Jesus, the, the bringing of the resurrection of the dead. For, he doesn't have any of that in mind. That, that's not what, what this is about. But we as Christians need to have that idea in mind. That, that if, if I get caught up in all this, it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, there's a righteousness that exceeds what happens on the earth. There's a righteousness of God that extends into eternity, and that's exactly the way we need to look at issues like this. He, so, but, but here, Abraham says, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he's telling God what's justice interesting idea. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham says, um, hey, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. 
I who am but dust and ashes, I recognize who I am and who you are. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Would you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? In other words, if there were only 45, would you destroy the whole city? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke and said, how about 40? And for the sake of 40, I won't do it. Then he said, oh, don't be angry and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. I won't do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then he says, that's enough. I'm not bargaining with you anymore. So what is the presupposition that Abraham has about Sodom? That it's a wicked place. That you, you might or might not be able to find 10 decent people there. there you might not. And what does righteous mean? And and that's another huge question. What does it mean to be a Sadiq, which is the Jewish word for a righteous man? So most of the time, what you'll see is he was righteous in his generation. That's Noah found favor in God's eyes because he was righteous in his generation. And it's interesting the way that 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 the Jews see Noah, and that is, well, he, you know, okay. He okay. You know, that they don't see him as being that great a guy because what they see is compared to the other men of his generation. He was righteous. Well, big deal. The only only inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. But Noah's wasn't. So comparatively, he's not he, okay. So he's righteous compared to those people. Big deal. So when when Abraham talks about a righteous man, he's not talking about a figure like Jesus who is without sin. And and he's he's thinking of comparative righteousness. He's not because he knows his own. He knows Lot. He knows all about these people so he because he's already had to deliver him once because the Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities rebelled. This is back, way back in uh, Genesis 14. They rebelled against their uh, kid or Lamer, and and then he goes. Abraham does. He, he has to free Lot, who's been taken captive, and he goes and, and, and frees Lot from his captivity, and he defeats the kings. And so he knows about Sodom because he's got a nephew there and he's had some dealings with the people of Sodom. And so he knows that. And the whole presupposition is there ain't too many good people there. But but the thing is, is that this word righteous, we need to understand what that means. And what that means is Jesus, because he's the only truly righteous man. And what that means is he is without sin. And a ridiculous number of Christians don't believe that. Do not believe that. They do not believe that he lived a sinless life. Part of the problem with the church is we, if we think that, then we underestimate righteousness and we underestimate God's holiness and we uh, diminish the horror of sin. And, and what we can see is, is that, that we know we should know better than that. But it takes perfect righteousness. You, you are not going to heaven if that's your eternal destiny because you were a pretty good person. You were better than most of the people you lived with. You were better than the people that you know around you, the people you read about in the newspapers and hear about on the news. You were better than those people. Well, that's not enough. You have to have perfect righteousness. Therefore, Jesus is your only hope. He was the only hope and is the only hope for Abraham, for Moses, for Elijah, for all the prophets. That's the reason Isaiah can say when he gets a vision of God's holiness, he can say, I'm a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. No matter how good he thought he was, when he saw God, he knew that he wasn't good enough. 
And that's the reason in, in Revelation 5, it says they were, they were, the, the scroll is in the hand of the one seated on the throne, and there's no one found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to do it until the lamb looking like it was slain came before the throne. Jesus is unique in world history. He is the only sinless man who ever lived. And therefore, he is able to take those scrolls. But he also is our intercessor. When, when, when they're going to stone the woman who's been called in adultery, what does Jesus say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What does that mean? Jesus could throw the first stone. But because he chose not to, no one else can. And, and that's the way we need to understand our relationship with him, that, that he could cast the first stone, he could judge us, but he doesn't. And we see that very thing in Luke 12, verses 13 and 14. He's been teaching and he's been haranguing against the, the uh, rabbis and the lawyers. And then while he's teaching, a man calls out in the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus' response is, Man, who made me a judge or ruler over you? That's the same question. Moses was asked back in the day when he tried to intercede in an argument between two Israelites, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Jesus asked that question, and Moses didn't have an answer. That's the reason he fled into the wilderness for the next 40 years. So Jesus asked that question. That's not why he came. He didn't come to be judge and ruler. He didn't come to do that. He came to see and to save. He came to show God's love for us. He came to reveal something that had been hidden. It had been hidden in the law because they had believed that, that if I do these legal things, then I'll be okay. And if I, if I um, fail in any of those obligations, then, well, I can make a sacrifice and fix it. Well, we believe that, that there's one sacrifice for all our sins, and that is Jesus, once offered on the cross, celebrated in the church. But we've got to begin with the idea of, I don't know what righteousness looks like. I've never seen it. I've only read about it in the New Testament, about Jesus. And so that's the way we have to understand all these things. But we have to also understand that God doesn't judge us from a distance. He gives his Holy Spirit. And we see that again and again in the prophets. We'll see it in Zechariah, where there, where, where there are those who, are, who have gone to and fro around the earth, seeing if everything is well. God sends his emissaries to look after us and to, to give him information. So that, that's the way the Old Testament saw these things. Now, we know that we have the Spirit of God in us. If we believe in Jesus Christ and we are following him, then we know that we have his Holy Spirit and we can have discernment about these things. But, but it's important for us to know that we have a God who sees and a God who hears us. And so God had heard an outcry. He came to see if what he heard was the truth. And so he knows the truth. And therefore he sent his son to come to those of us who are oppressed by our own sin and generic sin in the world and the fallenness of the world that God created. And he comes to see us. And it's the revelation, actually, that's also been, was given to Hagar. Because when, when her child was born, she, was, she had been put away, and when the child's going to be born, she's crying out to God, and God says, you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then at the end of it, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So he's a God of seeing, and he's a God of hearing. So that, that's the comforting thing to know, that God hears us and that he sees us. 
But he doesn't rely on our judgments in things. He relies on his own judgment in things. He sends Moses to the people of Egypt, and, and what is it? he sends to the people in Egypt, but to the people of Egypt as well. And so what we get is this cosmic battle, because Pharaoh says, no, I will not let your people go. Well, that's a choice. You could have, and you could have avoided the plagues, but you chose not to, and so now you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with the consequences of your own choice, which is to say that, that he's going to reveal himself to Pharaoh, whether he accepts the revelation or not, what he's doing is revealing himself to be greater than the gods of Egypt, and ultimately then greater than Pharaoh himself, who believed himself to be a god. And so God's constantly revealing himself, but do we handle that revelation? How do we hear it? How do we see it? Do we understand these things? In the gospel today, Jesus is praying, and the disciples asked him after he finishes, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, and he said to them, okay, when you pray, pray this, Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, you're holy, separate, apart. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we forgive ourselves, everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, that's a shortened version of what we see in Matthew and what we pray in the churches. So we're hallowing God's name. We're setting it apart from every other name, and then we're praying for his kingdom to come. Well, what we need to understand is that when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying essentially for judgment to be brought on the world and a new creation, which makes the world into exactly what we believe it ought to be where things work the way you would think things would work, where, where surprises don't happen, where young people don't die, where all these things, there's no evil, there's no people coming against me and trying to destroy me, there's, there's none of those things happen. And so we're praying for that, but what it, what it entails is God to judge sin in order to establish a righteous kingdom. Now, I, I, I'm all in favor of living in the world I believe should be, but I have to acknowledge then that, that, that I need to work harder to prepare the people I love and to share the gospel with people that I love in order that they would be prepared to pray for that kingdom to come as well. Because right now, if they prayed for his kingdom to come, it wouldn't be good for them. So I, I need to hear, when I pray for the kingdom to come, I need to hear that I'm praying judgment come down on the world for his righteous kingdom to be established because this has to end in order for that to begin. And so I should have a different sense of urgency regarding the people that I love who don't know Jesus, if I pray that prayer. And then this radical dependence, give each day our daily bread. I need you to do that. It puts me in a position where I recognize my need of God's provision, that all I have comes from Him. But it puts it, but, but that daily bread thing is a radical departure from the way most of us live, because we want to build bigger barns. We want to get more stuff. That way we don't have to worry about tomorrow. And that's not how Jesus said to pray or live. And then he asked to forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, so if his forgiveness is contingent on my forgiveness of other people, I better get working. And I better wipe some slates clean. And then don't lead us into temptation, which is what he's not going to do to start with. He's going to take us places where we can be tempted, but it's on us to react. And then he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he, the friend, will answer from within, don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, no, though, though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, because of his impudence, he'll rise and give him what he needs. I mean, you've already awakened me, and, and you're, you know, a pest, 
about this. So, yep, I'll get up and do it. And I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, he says, is his, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So are we asking for the right things? And then what are we asking? And when we ask for these things, are we understanding that what God gives us is good? And that's one of the biggest problems, I think, that we in the church face and we as Christians face. And what we have to recognize right from the beginning is the little prayer that so many of us learned when we were children. God is great. Good. God is good. Let us thank him for his food by his hand. We must be fed. Thank you, God, for daily bread. That's a great prayer for two reasons, or for multiple reasons. But the first two are God is great and God is good. If we could hammer those things into Christians, then we would we would be better off. Because we tend to think we know what's good. So God is great is hallowed be your name. God is good is I accept all things coming from you, no matter how they might feel to me, as good because they're coming from you, because I'm your child. And that's what Jesus says. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do you think the Father knows how to give good gifts? So when I receive them, can I receive them as good even if it's not what I wanted? even if, in fact, it's against, it's the opposite of what I wanted. You know, sometimes we have better hindsight on those things, but, but how can we stop having to wait years to see the goodness of God by believing in the goodness of God today, in the events of today, in the things that happen today? How can I see that? How can I, how can I stand in the goodness of God? Well, it's by faith, and it's by knowing Him and knowing His character. And so we can do that. And when we do, when we have that kind of faith, the faith that believes it's good because God is good and God is sovereign, therefore he's great. If I believe those things, while I might be in pain in the moment, I can still proclaim his goodness. Believe me, you can, even under terrible circumstances. And I know that for a fact. But it's simply because God's given me of his Holy Spirit to know his goodness and to believe in it wholeheartedly. And to believe that, the, that these things that happen, even if you lose a son, it can be good. It can be good. Because God's got a plan, and he's sovereign over all things. And I don't know why he does things like that, but I know he's good. And that's enough. That is enough. I know he's good, and I know that he cares about me, and he loves me, and I'm his child. That, that's the way we have to live. Now, I, I, I didn't get there in a minute. It required me to live a long time and to walk with him for a long time, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. But the perseverance in walking with him, even when we stumble and fall, even when we sin, and he picks us up and restores us and gives us forgiveness, you learn you learn about God's goodness. You learn that he loves you because you don't deserve his love. Because I'm a sinful, fallen human being. I don't deserve it. But that tells me he's good. And the more that we under, misunderstand righteousness to be comparative righteousness between me and a murderer, for instance, or a rapist or, a, you know, whatever, the, the, the less I understand grace and the less I understand God's love. Because I think I'm, I'm, you know, pretty good. I kind of deserve that compared to, you know, Billy Bob over here. And it's a lie. 
It's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's the problem in, the, in so much of the church today is we believe so many things that are lies. And that's, that was the problem in, in Paul's day. It's been the problem in every generation. It's the reason Paul begins this Colossians passage, Colossians 2, 6 to 19. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't just believe. No, 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 no. Live your life as though you believe it. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Now, if Paul can write an epistle from prison telling people to abound in thanksgiving as he does here and as he does with the Philippians, then you could surely do it. You could surely live a life abounding in thanksgiving. And we've got to be established in the faith, and faith is not belief in the face of evidence. Uh, To the contrary, no, it's belief in the evidence that's provided by the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the church. The history of the perseverance of the gospel in spite of all persecution should tell you so much. This established in the faith, Paul said, is saying is there's a truth there, and you need to hold fast to that truth and not allow everything else to come in around it. You need to be careful about your doctrine, because if you have right doctrine, if you understand things appropriately, then you'll be able to stand in the faith. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So stop bringing in truths from out there in the world. Be rooted in Christ himself. And so Jesus gives all the content that we need in that gospel passage, and that is God is good. Living out the gospel is important because it's the witness that we are a new creation. Paul's going to talk about that, but what he's got to say is don't allow yourself to be taken in, taken captive by, by philosophy and empty deceit, human traditions, and the elemental spirits of the world. And that happens all the time in the church. It's happening every moment of the day. We have to be vigilant always because so many Christians believe in things like karma. Well, that he did that, therefore— This is going to happen, or that happened, therefore, he did something wrong in the past. This is exactly what Job's friends accused him of. There's a ridiculous, like 40-something percent of of people who call themselves Christians believe in reincarnation. Why? Because I didn't get it right the first time. No, you didn't. You wouldn't get it right the millionth time. Right is perfect. Not just getting better. No, And, and the resurrection of Jesus says... I don't want to believe in reincarnation. I don't want to do this again and again. His sacrifice was enough. His one life was enough. I'm clinging to him, so I don't have to come back and do this again. No. Why would I want to believe in reincarnation? What is the, 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 uh, the thing that's, that's attractive about that compared to being resurrected to eternal life in the kingdom of God? The prosperity gospel, that's another lie from the pit of hell. Because it focuses on things temporal and teaches you to want those things and to desire those things. Exactly what Jesus tells you not to do. There's other things like critical theories, which separate people based on immutable characteristics and say one of these is better than the other. This group is worse than that group. No, those are Marxist theories that are based in the lie of Marxism, which is based in the denial of God. No. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter anything about you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's still people among us who are Judaizers. Some of the people Paul's going to speak about here. There are people I know people 
who will tell you that Christmas and Easter is just pagan. You shouldn't celebrate those things. But at the same time, they practice Christian horoscopes, essentially, by saying, oh, this festival of the Jews is coming up. Therefore, God's bound to do X, Y, and Z. No, he's not. No. Every day is important in the kingdom of God. These are just a few of the things where the church has been taken captive by those things, by those philosophies, by human tradition, by empty deceit, and by the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And he goes on to say, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see all of God in him, in that man. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled with the same spirit. Now live like it. Live from the spirit, not from your desires. Take a step back, pray, and live in the spirit. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's a different kind of circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the thing he promised through Ezekiel and through Jeremiah, that there's going to come a day when there's a new circumcision, and it's a circumcision of the heart. He says, in him you were circumcised that way by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And the body of the flesh means you're no longer ruled and controlled by your desires. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a stoic necessarily. No, Christ had passions. He was angry when he went in and drove out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals. No, no, no. It doesn't mean you're going to become a stoic and you're not going to have any emotions anymore. No, it means I'm not going to be controlled by them. I'm not going to be controlled by my feelings. I'm not going to be controlled by that. I'm going to be controlled by the truth and the Spirit of God. He says, he says you were buried with him in baptism. That's the symbolism of baptism. When you go down into the water, the old person has died, and the new one is raised to life through him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, you were dead. You weren't dying. He didn't throw you a life preserver. No, he brought you back to life. You have been resurrected spiritually already. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's speaking here to Gentiles primarily. God made alive together with him. You who were dead, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. He was bound to put us to death because of the righteous demands of the law. And when I say the righteous demands of the law, then I recognize that God is righteous, therefore his law is righteous. And I have transgressed against a righteous law, and therefore I deserve to be put to death. And he says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross of Christ. He took it all on himself. He took all the punishment for sin on himself. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and those are heavenly rulers and authorities Paul's talking about here, not earthly authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. That's the reason heaven is shocked. When the lamb, looking like it was slain, appears before the throne and takes the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne. They didn't see that coming. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. This is all about the Judaizer stuff, the stuff you eat, the stuff you drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that are come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He has fulfilled all those things. The things that those they're talking about, he says, are nothing more than shadows. Christ, if you want to see the truth and you want to see the fullness of God's truth and revelation, don't do those things. No, look to Christ. 
And then he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. And I've seen people put all kinds of things in place to say, well, he's not a Christian. I had one guy who told me one time he didn't think this other guy's faith was really strong because he didn't sing in church with his hands in the air and because he denied believing in his pet theory of what comes next. And so, no, you don't get to add things to the gospel that say I have to believe these things or I can't participate in the life of the world to come. Athanasius says in his creed that you have to believe in the Trinity, and that's important that we believe in the Trinity, that we believe that, that there are not three gods, there are three persons, one God. But, but it's important that we recognize all three of those people, that we don't just recognize Father and Son, but we also recognize a Spirit as one and binds all those together and that we live by the Spirit that's been given into us. And he says, don't, believe, don't, don't let people disqualify you from those things, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. Ask God this week to do one thing for you. Show you your own false beliefs, where you've added something to Jesus, where you believe these other things that you don't even need. They don't serve any value other than to detract from the truth. Ask God to give you true knowledge of the faith and then live from that revelation. Be the person that revelation calls you to be no matter what. No matter what. Because you're going to be rooted and grounded in Him and your faith will be firmly established. And you can navigate life a million times better when you know those things. And you don't allow those thoughts that, that sound like, well, this happened, therefore I must have done something wrong, or, or I did something wrong, therefore something terrible is going to happen. No, something terrible did happen. It happened 2,000 years ago when the only righteous man who ever lived was put to death on a cross for you, for me, for the sins of the whole world. Put your faith completely in him who didn't come to judge the world but to save it.